One reason people claim to travel is to have an authentic travel experience. They envision traveling to a foreign country and living and eating and doing the things that locals do in their native culture. I've exchanged emails with people ready to set out on a long adventure who see themselves living with tribes people in the African bush or in Southeast Asian villages. Most likely, they're in for a big disappointment. The problem stems from the expectations people have before they go. The experience that they're looking for is more often than not a stereotype they have of the place they're going, not reality. When I was in Samoa, I was talking to a woman from New Zealand who had been driving around the islands. She sounded disappointed and a little upset that Samoans had television sets. She lamented the destruction of the Samoan lifestyle and blamed it on Western countries. She then went on to a rant about how wonderful it was being able to live in a self-sufficient village. I pointed out the inconvenient fact that Samoa is in fact not self-sufficient in food. No Pacific country is. The most popular foods are instant noodles and corned beef. The biggest part of the Samoan economy are remittances sent back home from Samoans living abroad. The current population of Samoa would be almost impossible to sustain by methods used in the 19th century. She got upset and ended the conversation. She had an idea of what Samoa was, and more importantly, what she thought Samoa should be. Welcome to the Roaming the Earth podcast. I am your host, Drea Castro, and I am here with Gary Arndt. Gary is not your regular traveler. He is a photographer, a world-renowned travel blogger, a podcast host for Everything Everywhere, and he even owns an NFL franchise. He embodies traveling and garners an impressive list of places he's been to, including all seven continents of the world, 204 countries and territories, 50 U.S. states, and every U.S. territory, 220 U.S. National Park Services, and 400 UNESCO heritage sites and even explored the vast Canadian provinces. He began his traveling quest in March of 2007 when he sold his home and decided that he was going to live out of his suitcase. Gary has garnered an impressive list of awards and accolades, but here are just a few to name. He was in Time Magazine's top 25 blogs in the world in 2010, earned a gold medal and two silver medals for best travel blog by North American Travel Journalists Association, three Lowell Thomas Awards, which are the most prestigious prize in travel journalism, and 40 Lifetime Natcha Awards, holding the record for travel bloggers. And he was named one of the 100 most influential photographers in the world. That excerpt in the beginning was from Gary's blog from 10 years ago. Gary, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited. Oh, thanks for having me. What was that excerpt that you read in the beginning? Can you just tell us about that and and what that means to you? I was a, it was a post I wrote a long time a time ago about the futile quest for an authentic experience, and I think a lot of people when they go out they have this in this vision in the back of their mind of what the place they're visiting should be, and they're often very disappointed with it. Uh, the Japanese have a term that they dubbed called Paris syndrome, where they have in their mind this grand vision of what it's going to be like to go to Paris and they get there and they're horribly disappointed and they become depressed by the reality of it. And I think that it's that way uh, a lot in the world because people are thinking that they're going to travel in time and really they're traveling in space. And just because you go to a different country, maybe it's less developed does not mean that they're living in the stone age, right? They have mobile phones and the internet <laughs> and all this stuff. And that's, that's what it is. And I've seen people that truly get disappointed by this fact because they expect to be, oh, it's this cultural wonder. They want to go to a zoo <laughs> for people. 
And that's not the way the world works. Everyone in the world, they want to get by and and live their life and and whatever. And if they can get a mobile phone to talk to their friends and family, then they're going to do it just like people in, you know, other countries do. So that that's kind of what it was about is to kind of temper people's expectations before they travel. I think that's so funny <laughs> that you say that because yeah, it's so true. People go to these countries thinking, oh, it's a third world country. And yes, there's elements of it that you are stepping back in time, but also there is technology. So I remember this was years ago. I, I went to this remote temple in Cambodia and had a guy hire me for the day. And he took me on the back of his motorbike and we went through this one village. No tourist would ever stop there. There's nothing touristy about it. It's just a village and people lived. And we stopped and got something to drink. And the woman there had a jean jacket on and painted fingernails. And by all stretch, these people were quite poor, but they were not being poor. Didn't mean having nothing, right? right. They weren't living in the woods, you know, sharpening wooden spears <laughs> with rocks, right? Right. They had <laughs> things and, and other, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of lost on people that, you know, they, yeah, they, they were living their life and, and they did have some comforts and, and that's kind of the way it is everywhere. And it's gotten more so because the number of people in the world, and this is a fact that's often forgotten who live in extreme poverty. So this would be like less than a dollar a day mm-hmm. has decreased dramatically over the last 20 years. And so, yeah, there, there's less money compared to say a developed country, but that extreme poverty has been reduced a lot. And uh, so you're not going to find that. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I think it's okay to have, you know, somebody with painted nails and a nice outfit in Cambodia, or I'm from the Philippines. And yeah, like a lot of people think, oh, it's a third world country. But I have to say, I knew you're from the Philippines. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll go anywhere. First of all, anywhere I go in the world, I meet Filipinos. That's so everywhere. Funny. <laughs> and I'll meet a woman and like she's Asian and her name is like, you know, Mary Castro. And and I'll say, oh, where in the Philippines are you from? And she just goes, oh, sir, how you know I'm from Philippines? <laughs> how do you know it? <laughs> oh, sir. <laughs> and I was like, well, because your name is Mary Castro. <laughs> and, <laughs> you're Asian looking and you yeah. have like a, a, a Spaniard last name. <laughs> you know. That's funny. Yeah, it's it's crazy because in the Philippines, obviously, you know, I've met a lot of people that think because I'm from the Philippines that there's a certain way of living. And yes, there are, especially in very, very remote areas. But that doesn't mean we don't own a cell phone. And that doesn't mean we don't get our nails done. And actually, it's cheaper to get our nails done there. Okay. Like, oh, there's a lot of things that are a lot cheaper to get done. Right? Uh, exactly. I mean, I've known people that have gotten, you know, pretty expensive medical procedures done in Thailand or India. Yeah. Uh, where you can go to India and have like a heart procedure or a hip replacement and the cost of flying there, staying for a month, the cost of the surgery is all cheaper than if you were to have the procedure done in the U.S. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I used to go to the Philippines in the summertime and then get my like when I was a kid and my mom would bring me there to get dental work done because it's so expensive here in the States. So, yeah, yeah, of course. March 2007, you left your life. You left your job, you sold your home, and then you traveled the world. I mean, you're still traveling the world, but you traveled the world nomadically without well, a place. Now I'm not. <laughs> you're not right. I know. <laughs> exactly. No one is. No one is. Exactly. Um, but you traveled the world for the next nine years before getting somewhat of a home base. 
So can you tell me what was the tipping point? What was that thing that made you go, all right, I want to, I want to just do this. Like I'm going to drop everything and I need to do this. It was about 18 months before I started traveling. So it was in 2005. And so I had a successful business that I started. I had an internet company in the nineties. Nice. I sold that to a big multinational company, started some other companies, dot com bubble burst. I went back to school for a couple of years, uh, took just science classes for like three years because it was interesting. Realized that uh, getting a PhD was not something I wanted to do because I like learning, but I didn't particularly enjoy academics. And I just had the idea of traveling around the world. When I sold my business, the company I sold it to, I kind of conned them into sending me on an around the world trip to their offices to talk about nice. the internet. This is back in 1999. And so I went to, this is the first time I ever really been anywhere. I went to Tokyo. I went to Taipei, Singapore, uh, Paris, Frankfurt, Belgium, and London. Three-week tour, circumnavigated the world, and it was really exciting. I'd never been to any of these places before, never done any of these things. And I always kind of wanted to do more of it. And I realized it's like, well, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I, I've got enough money saved up. I could, I could just do that. And so I did. Uh, so tying up things, selling the house, putting things in storage, <clears throat> a bunch of other stuff took a while, but yeah. So it was, it was March, 2007 that I turned over the keys to the house. I had everything put away and uh, that's when it started. I know there's going to be somebody out there that's listening to this. Who's right on that tipping point. It was like, I want to do this, but I can and making every excuse because they're scared. What is your advice to somebody that's like that? Like, how do you, I was scared. I, so when I started, I lived in Minneapolis. I took a rental car, drove to Dallas, met one of my friends, got a train ticket from Dallas to LA, which is a horrible experience, by the way. Never take that. (laughs) Good to know. Went to to Hawaii for three weeks, roughly where I learned how to scuba dive, did some stuff in Hawaii. And then I went to Tahiti from Hawaii. So that's, that's the first place on my trip I go where I don't speak the language. And it was intimidating. I remember the first night I was in uh, Tokyo. It was really intimidating. I stayed up all night watching Japanese soap operas, having no clue what they were <laughs> nice. saying on TV. And in Tahiti, they have these cheap buses that will take you kind of around the island. And I didn't take it because I was so intimidated by the language issue that I ended up taking a cab. Today, having just done it, I don't think my French is any better, but now I just, it, it's, it's an issue of comfort and experience. And there's kind of this commonality anywhere you go in the world that I realized that you could drop me tomorrow in Turkmenistan and I'm cool. I'll, you just, I don't, I don't speak the language. I don't speak Turkmen, but I know I'll get by. And that just comes from experience. So you just need to do it. And a lot of people have fears about crime or something happened to them. And I remind them, you know, every day, seven and a half billion people around the world are not murdered. You know, there's tons of people not being murdered and not being robbed all the time. (laughs) The problem is you only hear about bad things that happen on the news. You never hear about good things or normal things. And so our impression of most places is always bad because we only hear about bad things. So something might happen in Mexico. Mexico is a big country. 
right? And most of the bad things dealing with drug cartels and stuff is, is in the north of Mexico. If you go down to the Yucatan Peninsula, the crime rate there is about the same as Finland. Around our homes, we may see something on the nightly news where someone is murdered, okay? We don't pack everything up and leave our communities because that happens. Because we're, we, we know where we live. We know we don't go to that neighborhood or that was just a thing that happened and, you know, to someone because we're familiar with it. But when we're not familiar with it, we paint everything with a very broad brush and it's the whole country. But it's the same over there. There are people that just are, are used to things and even places that might terrify someone like going to Afghanistan or Iraq. I know people recently who've gone to those places and again, not murdered. They, they live to tell the tale. Surprise, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because it's the fear of the unknown, basically. You're just scared. But right. it's like, and if you haven't there's been crime to, here. Yeah, if you haven't traveled much, I, I get it because you're in a culture you don't know, probably with people speaking a language you don't understand, and it can be really intimidating. So, you know, if you want to maybe go to a place where they do speak the language, you know, if you're an American listening to this. Go to Australia or New Zealand. You can get around, you can talk to people, but it'll be different. I remember when I was a kid, the first time my family, we took a car trip to Canada. And the thing with Canada is it's basically the same as the United States. Sorry, Canadians. We share a common culture, except there's little stuff that's different, right? The coins are different. Some of the, the brands in the stores are different and everything's also in French. It's in kilometers. So you have all these different things that stand out. And I remember when I was in Japan, it was the opposite experience. Everything is different. So my eyes were drawn to the things that were the same. Oh, they have Lay's potato chips at 7-Eleven. We have 7-Eleven. We have Lay's potato chips. You know, instead of the rolling hot dogs, like they have at 7-Eleven, they have, you know, fish buns or stuff like that. So um, funny. <laughs> But your eyes are either, you know, in Canada, it's drawn to the things that are the same or things that are different. And in a, a very foreign country, it's drawn to the things that are the same. So I think there's ways you can get around. And uh, it, it's become so easy to travel now with smartphones because you can get your, you know, at a moment's notice, you can pull up a map. You can do translations. You can point your camera at something and get something translated. It'll speak for you. So it's, it's so easy now that the excuses for not traveling really don't exist. That's so funny. Cause I know you started to travel when all that stuff wasn't around. <laughs> so I started exactly between. So Steve jobs announced the iPhone like a month before I started traveling. And then it came on sale several months after I started traveling. So there were no smartphones when I started, I had to go to internet cafes, uh, bad wifi. <laughs> and all of that, and it's hard to even find an internet cafe anymore because everyone has has phones now. Right now, it's it is so easy. Like I went to China and I had a translator. I didn't. No one spoke any English in this one village, and you know, I was staying in this homestay, and all we did was pass the phone back and forth. And it was so funny because we're eating this like you know homestay dinner, and it was so nice because we could communicate and we're laughing. And it's just I can't even imagine traveling to the same location years ago because I would be lost. I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, it's like Star Trek. It's having the universal translator. I know, exactly. If somebody wants to do this, even if they are scared, you know, like what is that like piece of advice that you can give them? You just have to do it. 
It's like ripping off a Band-Aid. At some point, you got to go somewhere. Um, go to, there, there, you know, there's on a scale of like one to five. Going to, say, England or Iceland, that's a one, okay? And even some of these, like anything in Northern Europe, everyone speaks English. Literally everyone speaks English. Like maybe you'll find someone who's in their 90s that doesn't. But Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, Iceland, everyone speaks English in these countries, not to mention, of course, Ireland and the UK. No problem. Australia, uh, anywhere in the Pacific for the most part, same thing. Not a problem. Uh, if, if communication's your concern, if you're looking for something a little more adventurous, something like the Philippines, I'd say almost everyone in the Philippines speaks English. Yeah, pretty much. Certainly widely spoken. Um, not a problem. And you, you'll see, you know, signs and advertisements in English and stuff in the Philippines. It's uh, not an issue, but the Philippines is sufficiently different than say, maybe those countries that I just mentioned, where I think you'll get probably a very different experience and you're going to have uh, going to Europe. Singapore uh, might be another example. That's an easy place, very developed country. Malaysia, large amounts of English are spoken. Thailand gets huge number of tourists, uh, so much so that pretty much anyone in the travel and tourism industry will speak English and a lot of people in, in major cities. So there's lots of places. You know, English has become the international language of travel and tourism. So if you're listening to this podcast, you already got that checked off and you can handle <laughs> a lot of this stuff. So you have visited quite a few countries and you've crossed off a lot of stuff, like 204 countries, 220 U.S. national park services, and then the 400 UNESCO sites. That's really, I find that to be really impressive. How do you create this bucket list for yourself? And like, did you just go, you know what, I'm going to tick this off. Like, how did you decide that you were going to go do those things? Well, the UNESCO thing started because... When I, when I very first started that first week of so of traveling, I was in the big island of Hawaii and I went to Volcanoes National Park and they had the sign saying it was UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I'm like, well, what is that? And I went and looked it up and I'm like, oh, there are other ones. And I was going to be going to uh, Easter Island next. And that was a World Heritage Site. And then, oh, I was, oh, there's a couple in New Zealand. I'll, I'll go to those. And then I just started going out of my way to do it. Uh, and a lot of them are places that you would otherwise never bother to go because a lot of them are not well known. Yeah. So when I was in the Philippines, for example, I went up to vegan, um, which I think a lot of Filipinos know where that is, but I don't see, I didn't see any foreign tourists that were there. Yeah. I went to Banawe and the rice terraces, uh, which Banawe. again are, if you're a Filipino, you know what that is, but I don't know if a lot of people outside the Philippines know what that is. And it's an amazing area. I mean, it really is uh, an incredible, it's, I think probably one of the top attractions to see in the Philippines. Um, and there were, there were lots of places like this and especially in Europe, there's so many of them in Europe. And then I realized that I had been to all the ones in the United States for the most part, there's only one I haven't been to and it's the outer Hawaiian islands, which are impossible to reach. Most of them were national parks. So I'm like, well, I should visit national parks. Give me something to do in the U S. And so uh, there's 62 places that are national park parks proper with that name. And I've been to 57 of those. I was going to finish it this year, but pandemic. And there's 421 sites that are run by the park service. That includes monuments, battlefields, things like that. And I've been to about half of those. 
Overtourism has been talked about a lot. And I feel the reason for that overtourism is the problem is because people just don't know about most things. I don't think most Americans could tell you a city in France outside of Paris. I mean, truthfully, I mean, I don't think they could. And so they only know to visit Paris because they don't know anywhere else to go. But once you broaden that, uh, national parks are a great example. Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon gets millions of visitors per year. In Canada, Banff by far is the most visited national park. The best national park, though, I think, Nahani National Park. Nahani, yes. It doesn't get eight. It doesn't get millions of visitors a year. It gets eight hundred a year, and the reason is because it's so hard to get to. Most Canadians I talk to don't even know it exists, and it's up in the. Uh, the, the Northwest Territories of Canada, there are no roads connecting it to the outside world. Wow. You have to fly in. And it has one of the greatest waterfalls in the world, some of the most spectacular mountains you're going to see in North America. It has one of the biggest canyons all in one park. This is Lord of the Rings type stuff. And it's, it's all there and nobody knows about it and no one goes there. And I talk about this on like every interview I do. And I have not yet to seen a massive uptick in people visiting Nahani National Park because of the difficulty. Uh, there's another park in the other side of Canada called Torngat Mountains National Park, and it has fantastic fjords. And wow. it's run, the, the park is run by the local Inuit community. Wow. And I remember one day we took a boat to the end of this fjord. We got out and uh, they said, here's lunch. And they gave us fishing poles. And... That's we amazing. Caught, when I say we caught, I mean, I took pictures. Uh, <laughs> Arctic char. This this fish was as fresh as possible, right? It was yeah. literally, they caught it. And it, it if you've ever had Arctic char, it's like salmon on steroids. It's, it's, in, it's amazing. And I got to, uh, you know, you get to, to meet these people. They, most of them live in the local community of Nain, but this is, Again, less than a thousand people a year visit this park, and of of those who do, half of them are sailing through on a boat and never get off. Wow! Oh my! So God. there are places like this all, even in Europe. Uh, the place I always mention is the city of Padua in Italy. Padua is a twenty minute train ride from Venice. Venice, millions of people every year. They're getting off cruise ships. Everybody knows about Venice, the gondolas and the canals yeah. and everything. Twenty minutes away on a train is Padua. Padua has the largest city square in Europe. It has one of the largest basilicas. It has one of the oldest uh, botanical gardens in the world. Um, the Scrivingi Chapel is there, which is one of the, the greatest works of art on the continent. And no one, no one bothers to go, even wow. though it's right there, because everyone knows about Venice and they need to be able to tell their friends back home about it. And I'm not saying Venice sucks or anything. Venice is a great place. Yeah. But there are many of these places that people just don't know about. And so they don't go. Yeah. This year I've been, because of the overpopulation of the usual places I go and travel, all the, like I go to all the national parks and stuff here and I camp, it's been packed. Um, I've been really trying to find like secret locations in California and there's so many and I'm exploring all of the Sierras right now. And I'm just so shocked that all this time, these beautiful uh, glacier lakes were up here and I just didn't know about them. And so I just started researching. California, you think of California, it's a populated state, right? Mm -hmm. All the people live 
along <laughs> yeah. the coast yes. in either the Bay Area or Southern California. And when you get on the eastern side of the mountains, there's nothing. I mean, these are counties that have a couple thousand people. So there's an enormous part of the state of California. And when you get into like the north, the north north, it's just nothing. I did a road trip last year, Southern Oregon and Northern California, and I visited some of the parks up there and you can drive for an hour or two without seeing anybody. And I think that's a part of California that people kind of forget. There are gorgeous places that people don't really explore. There's so much to see. Drive through Nevada. Go to Great Basin National Park, which is That's right on the edge. That's on top of my list. Because <laughs> driving there, I mean, the, the middle of Nevada is the closest that America has to the outback of Australia, where there is truly, truly nothing. Where it's like, if there's a town coming up, you better get gas because <laughs> you're going to run out. Because um, to get there from California, you basically got to drive through the whole state. And mm -hmm. let's say you're going from like Reno or Tahoe over to there. It's that, that is like the most desolate road in America. Yeah. I wanted to go do that this, um, this past summer, I ended up going to one of those glacier lakes instead, but I was like, I want to go to great basin. That's on my top of my list. Cause I do have those, those lists, like those national uh, lists <laughs> go in the summer. I went there in the winter and the bristlecone pines. You can't really see them in the winter because the roads are closed due to snow. But if you go there in the summer, you're going to be able to see them. And the bristlecone pines are the oldest trees in the world. Um, and somewhere up there, they won't tell you where it is, is the Mesuzula tree, which is the oldest tree on the planet. Wow. Yeah, that's my that's my goal for next year. I really, really want to go to Great Basin. So that's that's on my list for sure. <laughs> what are some of the challenges that you've faced doing what you do? How did you mitigate those? How did you find solutions for those challenges? Uh, trying to work while you're traveling. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk about digital, being a digital nomad. And I've never really called myself a digital nomad because I wasn't going to Chiang Mai or Bali to go work on my drop shipping company or whatever a lot of these people do. I actually was traveling. I'm a traveler. But writing about it and editing photos and stuff takes time. So I remember I went to Antarctica back in 2011, and it was an 18-day trip. And I just, you're on a trip like that, you just take as many photos as you can because you're not going to be going back anytime soon. So I had many thousands of photos, and uh, the company I was working with, they said, well, where do you want your return ticket? Because I don't have a home. I, so I said, send me to Belize because I'd never been to Belize at the time. And I just hung out on Key Cocker for two weeks, uh, editing photos, working. So I, I will often have these periods where I'll travel and then I'll work and I'll just kind of sit in one place. And I almost call it like an anti-vacation. So I remember I was going through Southeast Asia and I was doing a lot of stuff in Thailand, Malaysia, I was, went through Cambodia and then I got to Saigon and then I just sort of stayed put for a month and a half. And I just stayed at this one guest house, it was really cheap. I remember I got off the bus from Cambodia and Saigon. I had no place to stay. And a woman comes up and she just has a book and with pictures of her guest house. She says, sir, do you need a place to stay? And I was like, yes, I do. And I was like, how much is it? She goes, it's $15 a night. I said, do you have Wi-Fi? She said, yes, I do. I'm like sold. And <laughs> I stayed there for a month and a half and they were great. They liked me because they didn't make any noise and cause any trouble. 
and uh, you know, they were happy. I was happy. And I, I didn't really do much of anything for that month. I just sort of hung out and uh, worked, got stuff taken care of. Yeah. I, I had to get my laptop replaced and some other stuff. And I just did all that there. So I do that periodically. I've, I've done extended periods like that in Bangkok. I did one in Melbourne, um, other places around the world where, you know, it's kind of affordable. I, I wouldn't usually normally do that in Europe just because it's oh, so yeah. expensive. Interesting. Okay. What is your most interesting travel story? Potentially dangerous. I saw on your blog, you don't really talk about like dangerous stuff because obviously, you know, like you've never been in danger, but maybe potential danger or something exciting. You've been in an active war zone in Cambodia. You've like wrote out a tsunami in Hawaii. You've done like so many different things, but what is... Most of those stories, you almost have to kind of bring down the expectation. So when I went to the war zone, yeah, technically, yes. But when I got there, everybody was just napping. So it wasn't like everyone's behind machine gun. So what happened was I went to the temple of Previer in Cambodia. And Previer is right, right on the border of Thailand. Like literally you go down the steps of the temple and that's the border, right? So traditionally, most of the visitors to Previer have come from the Thai side of the border because they had a very nice paved road. They'd have buses and that's how they got there. And on the Cambodian side, it was just a, a dirt road, right? There's nothing. So a few weeks before I arrive in Cambodia, it gets declared, Previer gets declared a UNESCO world heritage site. Oh. And there, Thailand had always kind of claimed it. And so they sent troops over the border to try to take it. This is a few weeks before I arrived. And this had really more to do with domestic politics in Thailand. And yeah. Cambodia is like, no, 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 it's ours. So they tend to send troops over. And a couple of people were killed. So it's in this that I decide I want to go to Previer. So I get this local guide who's been driving me around Angor and Siem Reap to take me over there. Okay, but it wasn't, they're not like they're, they're attacking tourists, right? These were, these were soldiers. Like some middle-aged white due to the camera they're not, I'm not part of the fight <laughs> right right <laughs> um so he says okay we can do this but it'll cost you know 100 bucks which is a lot for hiring a, a driver and he says it's going to take all day and maybe we got to stay you know he kind of tells me and whatever and his dad was a police officer in CM Reap okay so he picks me up really early in the morning cuz it's like a 7 hour ride to get to Previer 7 hours back on the back of a tiny motorbike. Oh my God. And by the way, it, I, I was on the back, the part that wasn't cushioned and my ass literally, it, it hurt really bad. And I've had problems with, uh, you know, my butt, basically my tailbone <laughs> ever since. God. <laughs> so we go there, we see everything. There are soldiers there. And I read on the news when I got back that day that I guess a Thai soldier had stepped on a landmine or something. So someone actually died at some point on that day. I see the temple. There's a whole bunch of uh, propaganda signs in English, which, which had to be for foreigners, you know, for their benefit on the way back. So we get caught in the rain. And we, if you're wet on a motorcycle, you can dry off pretty quick because of the wind, except for your ass because it's sitting on the bike. And if you've ever been in a bathtub really long and you know how <laughs> your skin gets wrinkly. Oh my God. So that's my butt on this motorcycle on the back of this motorcycle, going over these rough roads, getting pounded. 
So I'm like, <laughs> we got to stop. I'm in pain. So we pull over the side of the road and, and the sun's already down. It's dark. And we're not too far from CM Reap at this point. And these guys pull up in a car and they, they noticed me there and they started talking Khmer. I do not speak Khmer, but I did know that on the start of our trip, uh, the guy who rode me, cause his dad's a cop, his dad gave him his revolver and he had it under the seat of his bike, this pistol. And as he's talking to these guys, he lifts up the seat of the motorbike and he has his hand there and they're talking, they're talking. And I don't know what's going on. All I know is he has his hand on a gun and, uh, they, they revolve, they resolve whatever they're talking about. The car leaves, he puts the seat down and he says to me, we have to go right now. So I get on the bike, even though it hurt and we left and that was that. I, I don't know if it was, it was potentially dangerous. I think it was no. potentially dangerous. There was a big protest 10 years ago in Bangkok in one night or one day they were going to, the protesters, and this is like hundreds of thousands of people protesting. Wow. They're going to go dump human blood on the prime minister's home, which happened to be a couple blocks from where I was staying. So I'm like, all right, I got to check this out. So I grabbed my camera and I'm between thousands of protesters and wow. hundreds of cops in full riot gear. Wow. And there's international media and stuff around. And that was actually kind of exciting uh, to, to be there for that. And, and one time I actually got a law changed in a country. Really? Uh, yeah. So I, one of the, fir- the first place I ever visited in my travels were islands in the Pacific. And one of them was the nation of Kiribati, which is spelt Kiribati, but it's pronounced Kiribati. It at the time was the only place Americans needed a visa to enter. And there's not a lot of embassies for Kiribati. So I stopped at the embassy in Fiji in Suva. I made a special trip over to Suva to, to stop at the embassy. I got the visa. And in most countries, the visa is a sticker they put in your passport. Not Kiribati. It's literally a rubber stamp and a ballpoint pen. So I leave Fiji and I'm going to New Caledonia, Vanuatu, and the Solomon Islands before I go to Kiribati. And in the Solomon Islands, I get stuck out in the rain on this remote island and All my stuff gets drenched, everything, including my passport and the ink, you know, passport pages, if you're familiar with them, they're kind of like plasticky, you know, they're kind of slick. Well, the ballpoint ink that they use to fill in the dates of the visa bled off the page. And when I arrived in Tarawa, which is in the middle of the Pacific ocean, right? It is well and truly, there is nothing around it. Uh, They wouldn't let me in the country. And I was, I could tell it's like, look, it bled off, but you can still tell this is a, a Kiribati visa. I have my ticket out of the country. I have my hotel room and it's not like, you know, where am I going to hide? You know, it's a coral atoll. It's he's like, nope, not letting you in. And for the first and only time traveling, I kind of really threw a fit. Eventually the airport manager comes over and he says, look, we have a flight going to Fiji in six hours. That's the flight you're going to take in four days. You can get on that flight if you want. So I'm like, fine. I had been in touch with the minister of tourism from Kiribati to make sure I had the visa issues straightened out before I arrived. And so I wrote him kind of a nasty email saying, look, I was in touch with you. I did everything right. They could have called the embassy and verified it. They didn't do that. They could have called you and verified it. They didn't do that. No one wins. I don't get to visit your country. You don't get me spending money in your country, writing about it. No one, no one won here. No one benefited from what happened. 
So I, so I, I went to Fiji. I booked a ticket immediately to Honolulu, sent the email, didn't think about it. He forwards the email to the prime minister of the country. And three months later, Americans don't need a visa to go to Kiribati anymore. So I tell people, if you ever go to Kiribati and you're an American, you have me to thank for it. Wow, that is crazy. Wow. I mean, you did go the right route. You were literally talking to the. Yeah, but and I haven't been back. I, I mean, I still I do want to go back, but uh, haven't done it yet. I'm glad you changed that law for us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Pacific is my favorite part of the world. These islands are seldom visited. You know, there's a couple that get a lot of visitors. Uh, Fiji does, but it's primarily people from Australia and New Zealand. Places like Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, they don't hardly anyone visits them at all. And they're fantastic places, especially like Micronesia, Marshall Islands, and Palau. They speak English. They use the U.S. postal system. They use the U.S. currency. So it's basically like going mm -hmm. to a part of the U.S. It's like one step removed from, say, visiting Guam. So they're really easy to visit, but but again, no one does it. I mean, I've heard of it maybe like once or twice just bypassing, but I've actually never heard anybody who's gone and visited those islands. So yeah. That's There's a flight from Honolulu to Guam called the Island Hopper, and it's run by United. And okay. that's pretty much the only way to get there. And what it does is it goes from Honolulu to Majuro, Kwajalein, Kosarai, Ponape, Chuk, Guam. And then the next day it goes back doing the same thing. What? And you can book this. There's articles out there about how to book it with frequent flyer points. It's one of the best value uses of it you can get. And, but the trick is you got to go to either Guam or Honolulu to okay. catch the flight. And that is a tourist destination for most people. So Guam is a lot of Japanese people that come visit. Um, that's the closest part of America that they can kind of get to. Uh, Honolulu is a destination. So nobody really goes to the places in between, but it's not hard to get there. And because they have a special treaty agreement with the United States, if you're an American, you don't need a visa. Not only do you need a visa, you can stay there forever. What? No limit to the amount of time you can stay in those countries. Wow. I mean, now that being said, I, I don't know what you're going to do there for, right. uh, you know, for that long of time, but yeah. um, <laughs> it is super, super easy to go there. And because they use the U.S. postal system, you could send something to the Marshall Islands for the same cost of sending it across town. Wow. That's... They have a zip code, a state code. State code is MH for Marshall Islands. So. Wow. I had no idea. Holy moly. Um, so you are like a wealth of knowledge. So <laughs> thank you. And uh, I think you're a wealth of knowledge because you've traveled so much and, and you've, you have, that does help. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've traveled so much. You really, really know, like you've spent the time and you have a blog uh, and you've been named like time magazines, top 25. Tell me about your blog. What made you start this blog and what do you think is valuable about your blog that separates you from other blogs? I've been doing internet stuff for a very long time, uh, since before, you know, most things, you know, 1994 before there was, you know, a Netscape browser even. <laughs> so having a, 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 I had a personal website before they were called blogs. So I've been doing it for as long as it, it's been done. So starting a website when I had my trip was a natural thing to do. And I also had several successful businesses. So 
uh, one of them was a gaming, a network of gaming websites that would get like 50 million page views a month at its peak. And these are some for very popular games around the year 2000. So I knew what, what, what success meant. And I knew that after nine months of traveling, you know, nobody was reading my website. I could tell you the names of everyone. And back then there was no social, I mean, there was social media, Twitter and Facebook existed, but they weren't big deals. Right. Uh, most people probably still didn't have an account for those things. So my website was the social media. People would go there every day and I'd just write updates like you would do on, on social media now. And I remember going to a, I realized I either had to take it seriously, whatever that meant, or just forget it and just travel and have fun. So I went to a, a newsstand in Hong Kong and I bought every travel magazine and I just went through them and I opened up a spreadsheet and I just started tracking things like how many countries they mentioned, how many pages had photographs and stuff like that. And the conclusion I came to is that people really like photos. So I started posting a photo every day on my website. And my photography back then was not good, period. It just it was pretty bad. But, uh, you know, one of my personal mottos is suck less. And my goal was to just suck less at being a photographer. I recognized it was bad, but I just kind of increment, incrementally improve. And uh, I kind of did over time. And I think that's one of the things people know me for. And I also don't bother writing about, I think most travel writing is stupid, to be honest. It's... Um, Writing about things like hotels and flights, I don't care about that. That's not why we travel. I don't know if you've seen some of these stories during the pandemic of like, oh, this airline is offering a flight to nowhere. It's like, why would you do that? Or, or you can experience the flight experience. They set up this little thing where you can like sit in a chair and they feed you. It's like, take an uncomfortable chair, put it in your closet and have a TV dinner. That's what it's like <laughs> flying. No one wants to do that. We put up with flying to go somewhere cool and to experience the cool stuff, but we don't fly for flying sake, or at least I don't. Um, so it, it's about that stuff that you see when you're there, which is why I go to national parks and world heritage sites, because it's always been an exercise in learning for me. Uh, and eventually it just, you know, I also, when I started traveling, I was going to a weird part of the world. I was in the Pacific going to places where people don't visit. And no, normally when someone goes on an around the world trip, they're going to go to Paris and London and Rome and Singapore and Hong Kong. And, you know, and, and those places are fine, nothing wrong with them, but they weren't going to the really weird places. Um, so I'm going to Samoa and Tonga and Vanuatu and Rennell Island in the Solomon Island. Nobody goes to the Solomons and in the Solomons, nobody goes to Rennell. And I remember when I was there, I asked them how many visitors they got a year. They said 10. <laughs> You're one of them. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And I think that number, that was a while ago. I think that number is probably, hopefully uh, higher now. I've heard from some people that the infrastructure has improved, but it's still not a lot. And I think doing something interesting and going to interesting places is really what captures people's imagination. And there's a lot of, you know, I, back when I started, I could tell you the name of every travel blogger because we all knew each other. There just weren't many. And now everyone's doing it. And everyone's just cranking out these SEO driven articles for places they may or may not have even visited. 15 things to do in wherever. And that's fine. But I think if you really want to make a connection with people. And, and so when the pandemic hit, so the last trip I made, I came home on January, on February 28th from Portugal and I got sick. I might've had COVID. I don't know. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, 
Well, I know. Actually, I kind of hope I did. That way it's, it's over. That's but, true. That's true. <laughs> uh, given all the symptoms, I think I very well may have had it. Um, but at the time, there were still hardly any tests that were available and healthcare workers were getting it. And by the time I felt better, there was no point in getting the test. Why take up resources that someone else could have? I mean, if, if it did come back positive, you know, I'm going to do the same thing I was doing anyhow. So I started a podcast that it's not a travel podcast per se but it clicks, it hits all the basis of why I travel. It's the interesting stories about these places and people, places, and things that you can experience when you're traveling and learning about places. And so I started doing that and uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's actually a daily show. So. Yeah. I actually listened to a few of the episodes. It's just like a nice short daily thing where you're just kind of talking about about 10 minutes. Yeah. And for good information too. very helpful information that I think, you know, if you're going to that place, that's really, really helpful. You know, I've always thought that, you know, don't bother buying a guidebook. Truly don't, don't buy a guidebook. They're a waste of money. Uh, any information you want about hotels, restaurants, everything else, it's all available online and for free. If you want to buy a book, buy a history book about the place you're visiting. Uh, for example, going to the Philippines. I, you know, the Philippines used to be a U.S. territory. A lot of people don't know that. If you go to the World War II monument in Washington, D.C., they have a pillar for every state and they have a pillar for the Philippines. And a lot of people are like, well, why do they have that? It's because it was a U.S. territory and there were Americans fighting and there were Filipinos fighting in, in the armed forces. And that's why. And there's a part of that history that uh, people forget. You know, there's like a couple decades from when Spain kind of stopped ruling the Philippines, which they did for centuries through to like the, the 19, the end of world war two is basically when the, the U S stopped it. And so there's a history there and a lot of people don't know about that history or how it came to be. And, and I think it's important to, to know that stuff before you go to a place. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. There's a lot of Filipino history and actually before the Spaniards came, it was like Cambodians and Chinese that were like docking our shores and like, no one even talks about that. So it's just like so interesting where our culture comes from. You know the name they were originally going to pick for the Philippines when they became independent? No. Malaysia. No. Really? <laughs> but the Malaysians beat them to it. That's funny. Because the whole archipelago is known as the Malay archipelago. Wow. So from like an ethnic standpoint, Malays, Indonesians, Filipinos are all kind of roughly speaking, you could say Malay. Um, but that word got associated with the country of Malaysia because it was the British colony of Malaya. And so they kind of got first dibs and yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. And then Prince Philip came and named us. <laughs> right. I feel like you are someone who's just always been consistent. You know, you have the consistent every day you would post a photo or every day you're you know, doing your podcast and you have these really, really helpful information. So I went from never having owned a camera in my life, you know, four to five year period, becoming the top travel photographer in America. And I, one of the things I did was I posted every day and I made my work public and everyone had to see it. You can take a photo every day, no problem. But if no one sees it, you really don't have an incentive to get better because people are going to criticize it. And there's simply a pressure on you to create something that's halfway decent. Podcasting the same way. 
when I started this podcast, I picked a daily format rather than a weekly format. And I've been podcasting for over a decade, right? I have another podcast this week in travel. We started in 2009. It's one of the oldest travel podcasts out there, but I picked a daily show in a slightly different format precisely because it would grow the show faster, make it easier to monetize it. And it would, it would help me. So you can, you got to do something. You've heard of that thing about doing something for 10,000 hours to achieve mastery. Well, I don't know whether 10,000 is the right number, but there is something to be said for repetition uh, and achieving some sort of mastery. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it quicker. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think that's why you've, you are where you are now because you've just been consistent. You've just put in the time. Um, so that's, you know, that's great, you know, it's, and such great advice for anybody that's really wanting to do what you want to do and just realizes the work that needs to be put in the consistency. Tell me your most meaningful person that you've met on your travels. I'm sure you've met like so many, but is there somebody that sticks out in your head that you can think of that made an impact in your life, made you change something about how you view the world? Cambodia went through a really nasty war in the 1970s. Really, really bad. And you can still see signs of it. You could, you know, when I was there, there were people that, you know, were missing limbs, uh, had had other disfigurations caused by landmines and other problems who were begging. And for whatever reason, these things never really phased me. And then I was in this, uh, not the temple I was talking about, but another one. I met these two small girls and they were selling these little bracelets made out of woven grass. And one girl just had a cleft lip and I don't know why, but it just, that hit me more than anything else. When something happens to kids, it just, you know, whenever you hear stories like kids with cancer or something like that, it always is a, a huge impact. Um, there's just lots of, of people I've met that if circumstances were different, they would have, you know, they would be leaders in, in countries or whatnot. And I think there's a lot of things happening over the next couple of decades that are going to really change this for a lot of people. There's opportunities through online education that it doesn't matter if you're going to live in this tiny island. You know, one of the things I'm really, really excited about, I don't know if you've heard of Starlink. Elon Musk, half the reason he's, he's launching all these rockets into space is he's created a network of these satellites that are bringing broadband internet all over the world. And they've just started beta testing it. And these people, they're, they're starting it in the northern part of the United States, like above 45 degrees latitude. And they're now starting it in Southern Canada. And people are able to get 150 megabits connection in the middle of the woods where you can't get a cell signal. And over the next two years, this is going to be expanded everywhere. And I, I, I'm thinking of people that I've met in the Solomon Islands or in Tonga who never had access to these things, you know, and maybe they'll use that bandwidth to watch Netflix. I don't know, uh, or pirated movies, but some of these kids are going to be going to be able to, you know, there's, there's free videos that you can watch from MIT on physics or math or the Khan Academy. And, and this is going to change a lot of things. And I'm really excited about that. What is your most fulfilling moment as you've traveled? Was there a specific moment that you kind of went, you know, like this was really, really fulfilling for me because you've had so many, <laughs> you've had literally so many. I, I don't, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but I'll, I'll say it. 
this was a couple, maybe a month or two when I started traveling. It dawned on me because normally when you go on a trip, you go home, whether it's a good trip or a bad trip, your trip will end and you go home. And I realized it dawned on me. I can't go home. I don't have a home. This is it. Where I am right now is where I am. And when that hit me, it kind of changed my attitude about where I was. And, you know, even to this day, I sort of have a, this is where I am attitude. I've slept in thousands of beds in thousands of places. I can sleep pretty much anywhere now, except an airplane. Um, so, so that was one. And the other one was I had this moment where I realized that I had no bills, no obligations. I had no meetings. I had, I, I had experienced as much as a human probably can true freedom, right? I had nothing on my schedule. I could go anywhere. I could do anything. I had enough money saved up where I, 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 that was not a, a concern. And that is something most people never experience. Even Bill Gates or these people don't because they have obligations and things that they have to do on their calendars and places they have to be a true, true sense of freedom where there's absolutely nothing tying you down nothing you have to be responsible for and the means to go wherever you want is something very few people uh, get to experience. And now I wouldn't say that I am, you know, I'm doing a podcast. I got to get that out the door. Uh, but that was, that, that's a great feeling to have. That is an incredible answer. Cause that is, ama- I, I could just, that would be definitely one of my favorite moments in life. Just to just think about it. it. It People think, well, if you just have enough money, it's like, no, it isn't. Jeff Bezos has stockholders and legal requirements and all this crap that he has to worry about just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that right. Other people have families and nothing wrong with having a family or anything, but those are obligations and, and things that make requirements. So it's very f- seldom that you truly as all of that is sort of at least one period in your life where you kind of don't have anything hanging over your head. Um, I recommend everyone try it once. That sounds amazing. I've never actually thought about that. Yeah. And you, you are right. You know, yeah. If you're wealthy, the wealthy, the wealthiest people that I know are so busy. They're constantly thinking about the next thing and they're constantly tied down and their, their mind is boggled a little bit, you know, because they're too busy, even though they have a lot of money. Like it's not, it's, I don't think that's freedom at all. I think it's quite free when you don't have any <laughs> responsibilities. And, and I'm not saying those things are bad, right? You no, may love no, your family no. and you might love yeah. your job and that's great, but it is a great feeling to have. If only for at least a part, you know, one part of your life, you have a bag, you have all your stuff there, you have nothing else. You can go wherever you want. Yeah. That's amazing. What are some tips and tricks that do you have for others out there who want to do what you do, who want to experience that nothing like that? Nothing. The, the, the privilege of nothing to do with like, you know, no responsibilities. Uh, You need to make it a priority in your life. I know lots of people that have full-time jobs and they make travel a priority. So they work so they can travel and 
they will save up their money to go on trips. They will take as much vacation time as possible. They will seek out jobs that allow them to have as much vacation time as possible. If you want to have a second car and a second home and a bass boat and a jet ski and all this crap, you're probably not going to be able to travel, especially if you're paying with it with credit card debt and stuff like that. You know, travel does cost money and where you travel is the biggest thing in terms of saving money. There's a reason why backpackers flock to say Southeast Asia. You know, you can find a place in Bangkok. I haven't checked recently, but you know, a $5 a night dorm bed in a hostel is not out of the question. Maybe it's 10. That same dorm bed in a hostel is going to run you 50 bucks a night in Zurich, which is more than a hotel room is going to cost you off uh, in a motel on the side of the road in the U S you know, I, I was in uh, Arizona last January and I could find uh, motel rooms out in the middle of nowhere for like 25 bucks a night. So where you go is the biggest determinant of how much money you will spend. If you go to a place that's expensive, if you go to Singapore, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, those are expensive places. But if you go to a cheaper place, you can get by for very little money. Where should I go next? You know, like where would, you know, what are your top places, maybe top three places that you think someone should go? South Georgia Island. Okay. And for those of you who don't know where it is, South Georgia Island is an island north of Antarctica. Well, everything is north of Antarctica, but uh, it's between South America and Africa. Okay. Uh, and it is home of one of the largest penguin breeding colonies in the world. It's where Ernest Shackleton rescued his men. It's a British territory, and you can only get there by boat. Okay. Only. There's no landing strips. It's too far away to go by helicopter. So what? a couple times a year, uh, the ships that go to Antarctica will often stop at South Georgia. Okay. And it's always the highlight of the year for the crews on these ships because they know South Georgia is actually better than Antarctica. And, but most people are enamored by going to Antarctica to say you went to Antarctica, go to South Georgia and the experience of getting, so whenever you, you land in Antarctica or these places or the Galapagos, you do it on a Zodiac, which is the inflatable boat and you land on the beach and you get off. When you do that in South Georgia, you're on a beach with hundred thousand quarter million penguins. Oh my Far God. as the eye can see penguins and it stinks because it's all <laughs> penguin crap and dead penguins and it's loud because they're all squawking <laughs> and they have absolutely no fear of you because there's no predators and they'll come up and they'll check you out and they'll poke around your stuff. And it's just such an amazing place. Uh, we did one hike through the middle of the Island. That was, you know, it's like being up in the Alps. It's amazing. Except that <laughs> there's, there's nobody there. And the, there's no permanent population that has ever really lived on this island. Uh, so South Georgia is one. Nahani that I mentioned is another. Um, if you love scuba diving, the best place in the world is Palau. Okay. Which is, you know, there's really the two ways to get to Palau. Uh, this, I'm sure there are more flights now. It would either be from Guam or Manila. Uh, those are the, the easiest ways to get there. Uh, the, it's a very small country, only 20,000 people approximately. They protect their oceans and the environment more than any other country on the planet in terms of what they do. And uh, they have the jellyfish lake there, which is a lake filled with jellyfish about the size of your fist. They do not sting. Okay. I was about to say, I'm like, oh. 
No, I grew up in Wisconsin. I, I never saw saltwater until I was 21. So I don't know a damn thing about jellyfish. So when we went there, I just jumped in the water because I didn't know any better. And all these Australians and other people were with me. They were terrified to go in the water because they grew up with a fear of jellyfish. I was too stupid to know otherwise. But yeah, they just there's just tens of thousands of them floating around and they'll brush up against you and they, they have no stingers because they're in this pond inside of a island. So there are no predators there. And the wow. pond is filled with seawater through cracks from the ocean. And that's, that's all that's there. So that's an amazing experience. Um, South Africa, go get in the water with great white sharks. Amazing experience. There's so much just going on safari and being able to like go into Kruger and seeing the wildlife there. I mean, oh, the Namib desert. Oh my God. I spent five days in the deep desert in Namibia. Yeah. That's that was incredible. Was. That they, we, we stayed one night in this place called the Lungaval, or they call it the wall of death. It's a 300 foot high sand dune that abuts the Atlantic ocean. Wow. And the Namib desert is truly just barren and you're camping above this. And, uh, you know, we're in four by fours and I, I, we went down this dune. It's a really steep dune. It's 300 feet high. And. Uh, what I learned is the the angle of pretty much every dune is the same, regardless of the height, because if it gets too steep, the sand just falls down. Uh, but man, Namibia is a great place. Uh, one of the tops of my list, Ethiopia is another one. That's oh, yeah. fantastic place to visit. Lots of stuff in Spain. One of my favorite countries in Europe, because it's almost like visiting different countries. There's so many different regions. And there's a lot of big countries like that, like India. Yeah. I don't think of India as one country. I mean, technically it is, but they, they speak so many different languages that being in the South and the North versus the, the part where they speak Bengali are fundamentally different countries in many ways, wow. different cultures, different traditions. Um, Central Asia is another place that's now starting to open up. It used to be really hard to visit. In fact, when I went, I remember it was a pain in the ass to get my visas for Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And then a week before I arrive, they lifted the visa requirement for Tajikistan. So that was a waste. Wow. And then they recently did it for Uzbekistan. So now you can go to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. No problem. No visa. Wow. Becomes super easy to visit these places. Tashkent in Uzbekistan is a pretty modern city. I was rather impressed with it. And just amazing things. Like if you go up into the, the, the mountains uh, in Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, it's fantastic part of the world and hardly anyone's going there right now, right? This is still a very under touristed place. And the word Stan scares people because yes. they think of Afghanistan. Right. You know, you know what Stan means? What? Land. Interesting. Greenland, Iceland, England, Ireland, Deutschland, <laughs> Finland, Poland. It's no different than what is in Europe. It's just that they use Stan. So there's Pakistan, you know, um, so there's no reason to be afraid and to be real honest, even though they are theoretically Muslim, uh, they're former, most of them are former Soviet uh, states. And so they're very secular. Yeah. I don't recall even seeing a mosque, uh, but I was in some of these places. So it's not like the experience you're going to have elsewhere, which also brings up going to Arab countries. I love uh, going to Arab countries. <laughs> Very misunderstood. I got to go to Saudi Arabia uh, two years ago, 
And that again was very difficult to visit because they didn't even have tourist visas. They just didn't exist. Now you can get them rather easy. And the Northern part of Saudi Arabia in the area around Al Ula, I only got to spend a day there and I want to go back, but it's a lot like Southern Jordan where you have Wadi Rum and the, the landscape is amazing. And the people there are, and, uh, there it's even a lot easier. It used to be, if you were a woman, especially you had to cover everything up more so there than in anywhere else. And they've, they've liberalized quite a bit. Uh, the women we were with had no head coverings at all. And no one seemed to care. You just couldn't wear anything super tight or, you know, just, just dress kind of conservatively and, and, and they were pretty cool with it. And I think they're kind of moving to what it's like in say Dubai. That's kind of the, the morals they're, they're shooting for still things you don't want to do in Dubai, but you can get by there. No problem. What are your travel goals? Where are you going to next? Like after COVID, obviously. I, I don't know where I'm going next, but the more you travel, the more you come up with places I know. That you need to visit. Um, I j- so if you go to Facebook, uh, I have a, a group there called the League of Extraordinary Travelers. And uh, just anyone can sign up for it. And I posted something there about this city in the desert. It's a Roman city in the desert of Algeria. Okay. And it's called, oh, let me make sure I get it right. I'm pull, pulling it up. Okay. Uh, t- uh, Timgad. And because it's built in the desert, they never built anything over it. So like in Europe and a lot of other places, they keep building on top of stuff, right? So they dig down and they find all this, this stuff. Well, that never happened here because it's in the desert. And the whole city, the street layout, it's all still there. Wow. I mean, the houses, the roofs on the houses are gone, but you can basically see what a Roman city was like. And it's just out in the desert. I didn't know about this place until recently. Um, so that's your goal. Well, there's a lot of these places. Uh, I've been to Rome several times. A lot of people go to Rome. What do you do? You go to the, the Forum, you go to the Vatican, you go to the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain, you do Rome stuff, you, you eat pizza, pasta, whatever. So that's your first trip to Rome, but I've been there several times. I've done that, but now I've, I, as I've been researching a lot of this stuff for my podcast, I'm like, there's all this cool crap that no one knows about. So the largest building in antiquity was Nero's palace in Rome. It was this obscenely large building. It got torn down and it was where the Colosseum is today, except they found part of it after world war II, and it was buried. And you can visit it, but it's not really well known that you can do this. And inside, because it was buried, all of the artwork and all of the painting is still there, 2,000 years old. Wow. You can find the, so under the Vatican is where it is because that was supposedly the burial site of St. Peter. Again, they were doing excavations after World War II and they found the origin Roman cemetery underneath the altar in St. Peter's which is where the old St. Peter's Basilica was, which was built by the emperor Constantine, which was built in that spot because that's where the cemetery was. It's just that it's been 1500 years and no one knows. So it's possible to actually go down there and see that. Oh my God. And there's all sorts of these things. The place where Caesar was killed is not in the forum. It was actually under construction at the time. He went to a place called Pompey's theater and Pompey's theater today is under a restaurant. And the owner of the restaurant will take you into the basement to let you go see it. So there's all these little cool things that I'm discovering that are not part of the normal 
you know, thing that a tourist might see right. that, that you can actually go check out. And there's so many more of these that I'm, I'm realizing that I'm thinking of running tours in like Rome and Istanbul where we just, we just stay there for a week. Yeah. You know, we just, and, and there are places outside of Rome as well that are, if you go like 45 minutes out of town to the town of Tivoli, which is up in the hills, uh, there's the Villa de Est, which was a Renaissance era water garden created by this cardinal who wanted to become Pope. So he just blew tons of money creating this absolutely magnificent garden that's still there today that you can tour. And the Emperor Hadrian built his villa up there. Nobody goes there. And it's <laughs> all these statues and the swimming pools, all this Roman stuff, it's still there. And no one knows about it. So there's a lot of of stuff. There's yeah, you know, there are countries I haven't been to yet. You know, I haven't been to there's some obvious ones I haven't been to. I haven't been to Jamaica. I haven't been to Cuba, Nicaragua, oh, wow. a couple other places in South America. I've I've technically been to China, but I've only been to the island of Hainan, and that was for a conference. So I haven't really explored a lot of China. Wow, yeah. There's a lot of Russia I haven't explored. I've been to St. Petersburg and I did the thing where they give you like 72 hours visa-free if you come in by boat from Helsinki. So I oh, did that wow. just to kind of say I did it, but I haven't really explored Russia. So there's a, I mean, the world is really big. Yes. And I remember when I started, I had all these plans. Oh, I'm going to go here, 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 here. And then when you're doing it, you realize this takes a lot of time because, you know, even exploring so the United much. States, I've now been to every state in the U S twice. And yeah. close to visiting a third time if I go to some of New England, and I'm not counting after that because it's just too much. But <laughs> even here, there's so much you can see. And it's a, you know, a, the thing is travel is a lifetime pursuit. It truly is. And a lot of people I know start this in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great if you go on a trip around the world or something, you're in your 20s. But, but that's just a start. It's truly just a start. Yeah. It's funny. You go to a place and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got to go back because I got to go visit this thing. It's like never ending, <laughs> never ending. Okay. So we're almost at the end. Um, we talked about advice earlier, but is there a piece of life advice that you can give to a younger Gary? Uh, I'll, I'll say the same thing. Whenever anyone asks me that the ability to adapt is more important than the ability to plan. If you're planning on going on on your big trip, you're going to plan, you're going to get the books and you're going to go to the website. We're going to go here and we're going to go here and we're going to go here and on this day and we're going to spend three and a half hours here. And then we're going to, your plans are going to fall apart day one. They always do. Accept this and put time in your schedule to just figure stuff out or to just hang out because that's important and it's something that you're going to need to, to deal with. So don't, you know, I, I had literally no plan. I had no round the world ticket. I had a flight to Hawaii and I had nothing after that. And then I bought my next ticket and then I had nothing after. Um, so yeah, just learn to adapt, go with the flow. You'll be fine. It all works out. I love it. Where can we find you? Obviously there's a ton of places, but tell us. Uh, the place I would I would say now would be uh, to check out my podcast, Everything Everywhere Daily. You can find it anywhere. You can find podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Pandora, you name it. Uh, I am the easiest person in the world to find. Even if you type in Gary and travel, you'll find me. Uh, 
I'm on all the big social platforms and everything else. Uh, you can sign up for my email list. I send stuff out pretty much every week nowadays. Uh, a lot of my thoughts about uh, things I've talked about here. You know, one of the things I'm going to be sending my next email is is talking about these lesser known places that when we can travel again, where are you going to go? And just knowing about these places that you didn't know about, uh, more people should consider doing that, not just going to the places that have cruise terminals or international airports. And what's the, uh, so your your blog is everythingeverywhere.com, everything-everywhere.com. Right. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Gary. You are amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on the Roaming the Earth podcast, stories and adventures of people who are jet setters, nomads, and explorers. Stay wild. If you're interested in hearing more stories from around the globe, don't forget to subscribe, share it to your friends, and follow me on Instagram on I'm Roaming the Earth.